Well, once again, my name is Chris Lane. I'm the senior pastor. Welcome. It's wonderful to have you here this morning. And this is actually the last in a series we've entitled Distinctives. Usually at the beginning of the year, we do a series something like that, which is, I suppose, asking what is church and what is important about church. And last year it was called Essential, and that was well received. And we keep coming back to this because it's important that we prioritize the things that are important in God's eyes. You know, if we were to jot down the, the top most important things about church, and if we were all to do that, we'd probably come up with a, a list as long as your arm. And so it's, it's helpful to us to ask, what is important to God? What is he looking for in the church of Jesus Christ? Let me pop that down for you guys, and then won't be peering over the music stand at you. And so uh, Rick began the series uh, with a, and you can catch these all on our podcasts or website, but uh, he began the series with a talk on presence. We should be a people of his presence. Then Dennis took up the theme, the baton, if you like, preached about love, a people of love. Then there was power, then there was authority. Last week there was generosity. I haven't got time to... To, to, to go back into that, I was thinking I might do, but I really feel the Lord's impressed upon my heart to speak on what I'm going to speak on this morning. But, but can, I, can I just toss this out to, to some of you, because a lot of you have asked me this question. We are a tithing church. Now, for some of you, you don't know what that means. But we are a tithing church. And ask your home group leaders, you know, uh, email us or something, we are a tithing church. Uh, and that's for us a default. We, we give... 10% of our e- income away, but we also, as individuals, give us 10% of our income to the church. And, uh, you know, every time I teach on this, I, I feel that I probably need to do a bigger, a larger series on it. But, but actually, uh, I'm going to forego that now. We may look at that later, the whole business of money again. We have to periodically revisit it. Because this morning, I want to talk about justice, the distinctive we call justice. Now, let me just kind of help you understand about these distinctives and what we're saying. It's more than a series on what we think Vineyard is about. I believe that these distinctives are common or should be common to every church of Jesus Christ, wherever they are, whether it's some wonderful little hot, fiery Pentecostal church down by the railway tracks or some wonderful huge great cathedral in a major city. These distinctives, I believe, are, are crucial underlying values. And it's important not that we get one or two of them right, but that we actually have the whole package. That it's all there. Because as we begin to aspire and work, plan prioritize these these distinctives church begins to look right it's the way Jesus intends it to be and it begins to function right now I've had a bit of a few health problems in fact this winter for a number of us in the church I know that to be the case it's just been a one thing after another well one of the things I went through this year was that we had a fabulous baptism service and I got into the pool and uh, Richard Gathard was, was helping me, and as we were baptizing, I'm not going to show you what I did in case I did it, I do it again, but as we were baptizing, I felt something go in my back. Boy, did I feel something go. And so I moped around the office for about three or four weeks, 
Uh, Rick was full of compassion and mercy. <laughs> the women just said, go get yourself off to a doctor, get out of my way. You know, they were clearly full of compassion and mercy. But after about four or five weeks, it was my youngest daughter who had had some back problems. She said to me, Dad, I am, you know, honestly, I am hearing what you're saying about this back problem. I didn't know it was a pelvic problem, but you need to get along to this chap. I've used him before. He's great. So I went along to this sports physiotherapist. Anybody here ever been to a sports physiotherapist? Well, you know what I'm talking about. I came through the door... And uh, he was able to fit me in pretty quickly, and a nice, personable chap. And actually, he impressed me. I was telling the Burn Church last weekend, because he took one look at me, and he said, you've got a lower back problem, you did it about four weeks ago, and it was a twisting, turning movement. And I thought, wow! <laughs> I'm in the presence of greatness! I was so impressed, because that was exactly, you know, it was a turning, twisting movement. It was absolutely astounding to me. So anyway, he says, okay, we'll take your top off. And I thought, that's great. And then he said, okay, drop your trousers. And I thought, what? <laughs> drop your trousers. I don't want you to visualize this. <laughs> All you people who sort of think in pictures, forget it. <laughs> stop right there. You're going there, stop it. So I, he said, well, drop them sort of below your buttocks. You know, so I dropped them like that. Feeling very vulnerable and self-conscious, you know. Anyway, he says, okay, okay, and he looked and he tried a few, few things, and then he said, you know what, You've, your, your neck's out as well. And I thought, oh yeah, really? It's my, you know, low... Anyway, he sort of talked a bit, and I, I gave him the benefit of the doubt. Anyway, next thing that happens to me is I'm face down on this couch, and he's got heat rays, and he's got ultrasounds, and he's got sort of heat creams, and he's kneading away, and then all of a sudden the door of the consulting room flies open and a woman walks in. And he says, hi Zoe. And he, he said, this is Zoe, she was the uh, women's slalom physio at uh, the last Olympics or something, I don't know, like that. And I, I'm going, yeah, look at I don't see you. So my face is all pressed against the thing. And without any to-do or any other introduction, she starts kneading my buttocks. don't know what else to say, really. <laughs> but I tell you, after my initial shock, they, they, they loosened me all up. And then it was like, okay, put your knee by your left ear and all this kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, what have I let... This is a cult. This isn't a... You know, I'm going to be... I'm going to wake up in, in, in Moravia with, with, with a funny costume on or something, you know. And, you know, I had to get into these funny positions, and then literally he would drop onto me, and there'd be this crack, and then a scream, which turned out to be me. <laughs> a very high-pitched, girly scream, I might add. <laughs> Not a butch, macho kind of... Blah, 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 you know. It wasn't a sort of Elvis deep one, it was a high-pitched shriek. And, there, and then I got up, and I was, it was fabulous. It was absolutely right. And I was absolutely astonished. If you're a sports physio, you know, more power to your elbow, but can I keep my trousers on next time? <laughs> and I'm actually 
going back because it had thrown my whole body out and I've actually got more problems with my neck. And once he'd pointed this out to me, I realized that the headaches I was getting and the stiffness was not all about that. Something had gone up here. And, you know, what he explained, and those of you who have got some sort of physio or medical background will know that actually we are, you know, we're a whole. And if one bit's out, it means that everything gets thrown out. And that's, a, that's the same deal with distinctives. You see, in the church of Jesus Christ, it's not enough, and all due respect to, to those of us and churches that major on these things, it's not just enough to be the most loving group of people. Because if that's the only distinctive, it's not church, or not church yet. Because... Love has got to be working. The presence of God, without the presence of God, we're nothing. We, we've got to have that covering of the presence of God. There's got to be that power and that functioning in that authority. And then the last one today, and to be honest with you, we could go on and on and on. There's got to be a passion for justice. A passion for justice. And I'm going to help us unpack and think that, about that a bit. When these things are all well oiled and, and, and in the right place, suddenly the church of Jesus Christ begins to look like something the enemy might fear. You know, I left that place, I've been there twice, both times now, this physio place. Coming out of there and walking down the road to my car is the most amazing feeling. Because for the first time in a long time, not just five weeks, I'm feeling loose. I can turn my head, you know, look over my shoulder without sort of looking like an old man, like Mr. Burns in The Simpsons with this sort of crooked head, this kind of thing. I can turn around and do this. And I'm thinking, it's not just about getting old. These things can be prioritized. These things can be worked on. We can restore the mobility of the body of Christ so she begins to look like the Jesus, the, the Christ, the, the church that Jesus intended. Amen? Amen. So, justice. Let's have a little look at this. And I must, to say, I must say, I am indebted to Tim Keller. Some of you are thinking, I know that name. Tim Keller is a, a New York pastor and he's becoming a very popular teacher, preacher, and with good reason. Many are hailing him as the 21st century's um, C.S. Lewis. And he was over here just recently and one of our staff went over to Oxford to hear him speak and brought me back a load of notes and just happened to be on justice, which was a godsend for me. So I want to just acknowledge Tim Keller's influence in what I'm saying and his input there, because I found it very, very helpful. But let's begin with a verse of Scripture. It's always good, isn't it, you know, to start with Scripture. What does the Lord require when he looks at his church? What does the Lord require? And I read this little passage of Scripture earlier on, but, but turn with me. It'll come up on the screen if you haven't got a Bible. And if you haven't got a Bible at all, please just pick one up from the... Welcome desk, we would love to give you one. That's not another one, it's one if you haven't got one, a new one. Micah 6.8, Micah is a prophet in the Old Testament. Interestingly enough, this little verse of scripture, my mother-in-law who's here today, I'm not going to embarrass her, but 
My mother-in-law's been involved in the vineyard since the 80s, and she will confirm that this passage of Scripture was, was a foundational conceptual verse in the birthing of the vineyard movement. And if you don't know, the vineyard as a denomination has 1,500 churches worldwide. We've got about 100 in the UK. Fliss and myself oversee a chunk of them on the south coast there. But this is a, a, a comfortable, familiar verse in many ways and a good place to start. Micah 6, 8 says this, He has shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? I love it. To act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is a great passage of scripture. Now as Christians we would quickly want to say and also that we recognize Jesus as the Messiah and I would say yeah yeah calm down calm down I agree the disciples said to to Jesus what is the work that God requires and Jesus said you know what to believe on the one whom he has sent Jesus so we marry the old Micah and the new get those two things in place and you're really beginning to fire on four cylinders. And, and this whole business of, of you know, acting justly and, and loving mercy and walking humbly. Do you know what? Curiously enough, and, and isn't it consistent what I, with what I've just said? It actually is a bit like the generosity talk, if you were here for that. You know, to, be, to become generosity, for it to become a foundational thing, a value, a distinctive, rather than some place we visit occasionally, we have to, and I tease this out a great deal, I'm not going to go through that all again this week, but I, say, I said we have to go back upstream. We have to leave the clamor of the city and the pressing... Uh, cries of the street hawkers and sellers and traders. We need to go back upstream along paths that aren't walked so frequently these days. Back upstream into the very presence of God. Back to his throne of grace. I'm going to unpack this a little bit more, not a lot more, a little bit more at the end of my talk, but I wanted to just set this picture. In order to be a church that bears the distinctive of justice, we need to go back upstream. Otherwise, it's like generosity. It's just something we visit from time to time when we are appalled by some sort of report in the news one weekend. We all get all aerated and write a letter to someone. But if the church is going to have this distinctive, we need to go back upstream. Laboured it enough for the, for the time being. So... Let me just say something about justice and righteousness. Increasingly, as we preach here, we're aware that we've got people here who are biblical scholars and makes us feel rather nervous. But if you are a, a biblical scholar, particularly if, if you have a little Hebrew, you will know that justice and righteousness, those two terms, have very, very similar meanings. Very similar. They... they, they they actually seem to walk hand in hand throughout the Old Testament. And another one that trots along very happily with that is mercy. Justice, righteousness and mercy. When we think of righteousness, we tend to think of being right with God. 
And rightly so. How does one get right with God? How are we saved? And all too often we will default to trying to be good. I think that's where a lot of people start, you know, on their spiritual journey. They, maybe God has never featured on, on their radar before. Maybe they've not had the benefit of a Christian upbringing. That was certainly my experience, and I know many people here who weren't raised in a Christian family. And, and, and you, somewhere along the line, it can be through all sorts of ex, uh, reasons, you, you get a bit, a bit of a God consciousness, and maybe it starts with fear and apprehension, it, 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 or it may be joy and thanksgiving, the birth of a child, as it was in my case. But as this God consciousness begins to grow in us, very often our first response is to try and be good. To try and live righteous. You know, try and do as you would be done by. You know, complete this checklist. You know, have I said my prayers? You know, did I go to church at least once a month last year? Did I do this? Did I do that? And there's all these kind of God checks that one has to do in order to become a Christian or a follower of Jesus. Well, we've spoken about this at some length, but it's worth me just visiting it here. That is not the way we become righteous. It's very often part of the journey. Sometimes, sadly, it's something we revert to. But the way we become right with God is about restoring this relationship with God. And that's only possible when we come and ask God's forgiveness. No excuses unqualified, no but, yes but, he did, she did, she said, he said, well the other, it's just God, I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness. We are saved by grace, as many an ancient theologian and not so ancient a theologian has said, we are saved by a free gift. It's the only way in, no other way. So this righteousness thing is, is first and foremost getting right with God. The Hebrew scholars, the Old Testament scholars will, will say, and yes, actually, Chris, it's about justice, isn't it? Because it's not just what, what we have done as God's created beings in God's face, in spite of God, isn't just. So it's actually a justice thing as well. God is getting the just honor and, and praise and worship. Justice is being served because you are a sinner, you deserve to be punished. And Jesus has taken that punishment upon you. So justice is being served in all of this. Yes, and I'm not even going to mention that this morning. Justice and righteousness seem to go hand in hand. But the other aspect of righteousness, as the Bible understands it, is not just being made right with God. It's about the way we are together the way we are with one another. And when the Bible talks about justice and righteousness, it really is talking about the way we are socially. It's all about the way we do church life with one another. And this is a very important message for us in the West. Because we tend to be individualistic. We tend to emphasize personal achievement, personal acquisition, getting all the toys. It's a very individualistic and personal thing. That is very, very, very different 
to the biblical worldview about society, where it says we are socially responsible for one another. It actually goes so far as to say that, that actually those of us that have resources should not hold them back from the poor. Now the poor, there's a kind of fourfold thing that the scriptures tend to visit when it's talking about you know, the poor. The widows, the orphans, the alien, the follow, foreigner, the, the immigrant, if you like, the misplaced person, and the poor, those who are just poor. Always talks about those four groups of people. And, and, and what the scripture would teach is that if you are a wealthy man or woman, and you have you know, a field that is, has got corn in it, you're not to strip it there. You harvest the corn, but that which falls to the floor or the, the ears of corn that are around tr- the base of trees and a bit too much of a faff to pick up, you do not go back to, re- to collect. You are to leave them for the, the poor because that belongs to the poor in God's eyes. It's theirs. And if you take that, even though you may hike, you know, have title to the field, even though you may have you know, paid for the seed, in God's eyes, that belongs to the poor. And if you take it by saying to your workers, do another sweep, it looks a bit ragged, there's a lot more there. You are stealing from the poor. Same with the grapes, same with other resources. The olives, you know, do not strip the olive tree bare because the gleanings are for the poor. It's a different way. We, you know, in our world, it's all, it's all mine and I want it now. Very different. So this whole business of justice and righteousness as it relates to the poor is more than charity. And in the West, I think we do charity pretty well. I actually think we're doing charity better these days than we used to. I'll say a little bit more, albeit very briefly, in just a moment about that. But from God's point of view, biblically, doing justice and righteousness is about not stealing from the poor. When you thought, actually, it was yours by right. Disadvantaging yourself for the sake of the poor. Now, some of you have heard about Job. Very few people actually spend time to study the book of Job. It's incredibly depressing. I'll be honest with you. A friend of mine is just going through at the moment and he wants to top himself, you know. But, um, you know, forgive me, Lord. There's a lot to learn from the book of Job. In fact, maybe we should get Peter to do something on the book of Job sometime for us. He nods less than enthusiastically. (laughs) Peter helps us with our teaching, biblical teaching, and essential. But why don't you just turn with me to Job chapter 29. Again, we'll throw it up on the screen because there is... There is something here that I want to draw your attention to. Those of you who don't know the story of Job, all I can say really is that he was a very, he was a nice guy who got caught up in some kind of cosmic, you know, battle between God and Satan. And here's a guy who's living righteously, doing right, and and suddenly his whole life begins to unravel. And he has three friends who come and you know, try and advise them, and they're not much good, and his wife isn't much good, and it's a, it's a pretty hard, you know, hard read, I have to say. Everything seems to fall. It ends well, and it's, it's almost worth reading it for the ending. But, but here in the middle of this book, Job is, is kind of 
laying out his complaint because he just doesn't understand what has happened to him. But we can learn something from this. Job chapter 29 verse 7 says this. Job is saying, he said, when I went to the gate of the city and took my seat in the public square, the young men saw me and stepped aside. I was, you know, I was a man of respect. The old men rose to their feet. The chief men in the refrained from speaking and covered their mouths with their hands. The voices of the nobles were hushed and their tongues seemed to stick to the roof of their mouths. They got all tongue-tied. Whoever heard me spoke well of me and those who saw me commended me. Now, in the text there isn't a why, but he answers the question then at this point. It's actually not rocket science. It's not some big secret to this society as to why he had the respect of all the good and the, and the, you know, the, the influential people. He says what they all knew. It says here, verse 12, he answers, because, because I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist them. The man who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I love this verse. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. You see, his why is, is not, oh, I had a bit of a dabble in property and did rather well in the late 80s and then got out just in time and managed to get into stocks and shares and now I've got a Lamborghini Mura and I live in St Albans, you know. That would be the kind of, you know, why answer that we would give. I mean, I'm playing with it. But for him, the why in this culture, this society, this people of Israel, is that I, I cared for the poor. Their pain was my pain. I put on, verse 14, righteousness as my clothing, justice was my robe and my turban. You see the difference there, the distinction there? And this is the world, this is the worldview, the paradigm, if you like, that actually came into, was prevalent in Jesus' day. Look with me for a, at another little thing. There's a lovely little story. I could spend a lot of time looking at this story. But there is this point in Jesus' ministry where John the Baptist, his cousin, who's been this great prophet, who has foretold, you know the coming of the Messiah, and, and has deferred to Jesus. It's all been going well. And then poor old John falls out with the powers that be and ends up in prison. And it seems as if while he's mouldering in prison, he has second thoughts and he's probably thinking about his life and how it sucks. And he sends a message to Jesus. Basically, you know, I think he's, he's going through this crisis where he's saying, has my life amounted to, do, to anything? Have I done the right thing in, in really really pointing to Jesus and, uh, and deferring to him. And he sends this message to Jesus, are you for real, essentially? Are you for real? Interesting question, this. Because that's what the world is asking of the church today, right? You know, are you just a bunch of crazies that do weird things on Sunday morning instead of going to the gym? Or is this for real? 
That's why these distinctives are important. So John the Baptist sends some of his followers to speak to Jesus and they say, are you for real? Turn with me please to Matthew chapter 11. It'll come up on the screen again if you haven't uh, got a Bible with you. Matthew chapter 11. Excuse me. Chapter 2, it says this, When John heard in prison what Jesus the Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? He feels frustrated, he's out of touch, he's not on the ground anymore, it's all second-hand and hearsay, and he doesn't know whether it's the right one. Are you for real? Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? And Jesus' answer is very telling and pertinent to what I'm trying to share today. He doesn't say, you know, listen, I'm a flipping great preacher, you know, everybody loves me, what I say people really lap up, you know, I've done a few, if you haven't, if you've missed it, John, I've done a few rather nice little whiz-bang miracles here and there. Of course I'm the one, get a life! He doesn't say that, anything like that. His answer, and some of you know this, verse 4, he says, Jesus replied to the, the inquirers, go back and report to John what you hear and see. Okay, so it's a hear and see thing. What am I demonstrating? The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. You see, it wasn't just that I do a nice holy prayer or sing a nice love song or, you know, I'm good with the kids. And he was a bringer in of the justice and righteousness of God in a way that actually was, was understood. He was deferring to the orphan, the widows, the alien or immigrant, the poor. Those were the ones he was favoring. And so when we, the church of Jesus Christ, begin to get to grips with issues of justice, we've got to understand that that actually it's more than just be good. Make a donation to the donkey charity at Christmas. It's more than that. Justice, in a biblical worldview, is more to do with social responsibility. The church becoming socially aware And justice has two elements when it is applied correctly to the widows, the orphans, the aliens and the poor. There is the helping the victims. I think the church is pretty good at that. The church. We're often first. We were, the the church of Jesus Christ was, was, was in Africa doing the AIDS relief thing when it was unfashionable and rock stars were not doing it. We're pretty good at helping victims, and we need to be. It's part of God's justice. Jesus Christ, 1 John 3, 8 says, Jesus Christ came to undo the works of the enemy. So whenever we see a victim, and if we have it in our means, to give in such a way as to relieve pain, pressure, or whatever, we should. That's one aspect, and the world sees that and understands it. But the other aspect is that we become an advocate for the poor. 
It's not just relief, famine relief. It's about saying, okay, well, we're, we're, we're all working together and we're, we're to, to use Jim Wallace's river, river imagery, we're, we're, we're busy pulling these men and women out the river and, oh my gosh, there's another one, grab him, quick, quick, yeah, dry him off, give him some food. Oh, here's another one. It, we're pulling people out the river like crazy. The church of Jesus Christ needs to get to that place where it says, wait a minute, who keeps throwing these people in the river? And the church is very good at getting people out and not causing offence and everybody says, oh dear little church, so busy. Oh, aren't they lovely? They're nice people. But you start asking, who the heck is throwing these people in the river? Suddenly, there's a bristling that goes on upstream. I'm not going to unpack this and don't lose sleep about it. I'm in trouble with certain politicians at the moment because of the vulture fund situation. Frankly, I don't care. Little ding-dong in the local paper, I'm not going to rise to it, but I've been quoted as criticising Anne Main. Actually, I didn't do that, but whatever. For not standing up and being counted at a recent vote about the vulture funds. Those of you who've been around will understand what vulture funds are. Vulture funds are, are really the... The, the, the crippling debts of some of the poorest nations are being bought up by, by companies from the governments and institutions that made those debts, bought, bought up at knock-down prices, and then they pursue them in the courts, often UK courts, because our law is a little bit more lax in this area. The companies then sue the, pe- the, 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 the nations for the full amount and costs, and it is crippling and iniquitous. Now, there was a fund that, that there was a bill that was going through Parliament a couple of weeks ago. It, we had, it, we were beginning to hope that something extraordinary might happen, but it stalled. I'm not going to go down this route. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And as a response, uh, uh, and because of that, I made a statement through the, through the Just Community website essentially saying, listen, our, our prospective parliamentary candidates need to understand that we're not just concerned about local schools and the state of the roads and all those things, which we are, but actually ordinary people have an extraordinary capacity for compassion. And this sticks in our craw. We do not like this. It's a who's throwing them in the river situation. And our, whoever is our parliamentary candidate in the future needs to take up this cause because this is a, there's a lot of Christians in this city. We're very busy doing charitable works. It matters to us. And to think it doesn't is quite frankly naive. Anyway, I didn't get a whole load of thanks. Nobody sent me a bunch of flowers for that. And somebody, you know... I, I had one email from somebody saying, God's watching you. <laughs> I won't say what else you said. Right, really took me to task, lectured me on the good book and finished by saying, you have, also, you, you have great responsibilities. Remember this, God is watching you. <laughs> I'm glad he is. Yeah, thank you. That was Fliss. Uh, uh. (laughs) 
You see, the church is actually asking, the, the world is asking of the church, are you for real? Like people asked of Jesus. You know, the world does charity well. You know, comic relief, you know, live aid, fashion aid, all these things. I mean, God bless, you know, the, this is a culture the, that, that is very compassionate. One of the reasons why, you know this, of course, one of the reasons that Lady Diana was so greatly loved was not that she was just a fashion guru, but she showed genuine, ordinary, everyday concern for people who were disadvantaged. And that was a, a resonance, a refreshing resonance in the heart of the British people because they feel that way too. We're not just totally consumed by the state of our roads and can we get our kids into this local school or that local school. There's something about British people. I'm sounding very pretentious and pompous here. I don't mean to, but it's an important point. So... How do we then move out of just the charity zone into the justice zone? We need to go back up the river. You know that Micah phrase, Micah 6, 8, we can probably project it again, to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. We will only ever walk humbly with our God if we have come into the presence of God and recognized our own need. One of my little favourite phrases at the moment is that we need to get over ourselves. Stop taking ourselves so seriously. We need to stop being so in love with our sense of self-importance and realise that, that actually, before the throne of grace, we are in desperate need. We are needy, just as the poor are needy, of forgiveness, kindness, and mercy. And when we see ourselves as recipients of his extraordinary charity, suddenly we're a little softer and a little warmer and a little bit more tender towards the widows, the orphans, the aliens and the poor. But unless we've pressed on upstream to the throne of grace ourselves, we'll just be doing people a favour. You want to, oh, yeah, okay, you want Comic relief, oh yeah, where's my credit card? You know? Fashion aid, well I'm into fashion, yeah, well, well, I can sell that designer suit and give some money. We, we've got to move beyond that. We're very fortunate here. Can I have the band come up? We have already uh, actually one organisation, but there's really two organisations that you may, might like to take a second look at. If you go on our website, we have a an organization called Just Action, which, which is very specifically helping us as a community engage with some of the bigger issues, some of the who's throwing that man in the river issues. But it's also linked to an interdenominational organization, which Roger Chisholm and a bunch of people here set up called Just Community. It's actually the most, the boldest and most out, forthgoing outgoing organisation we have in this church that is actively seeking to work with other churches because the Church of Jesus Christ should do this together. Work for justice. And this, this just community um, wing, if you like, of what we are is something that's becoming increasingly important. And people are sitting up and taking notice. So you, you might like to you know, check those out and, and pray about it and research it too. 
got a conference coming up, I'm not sure, April 20, 21st, there will be, be more to say about that. But to sum up, if we are to be a church that is in God's own making rather than my or in yours or something, we need to be a church that is just pervaded with a sense of the presence of God. We need to be a church that begins to do the hard graft of loving people in the welcome, in the coffee, with one another, the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, the alien, the poor. We need to be a church that knows something of the power and the authority of God in the, in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We need to be a church that gains a reputation for generosity, not as somewhere that they, they, they visit from time to time, but there's an ethos of generosity here. And finally, we need to be a church that loves justice, mercy, and walks humbly with our God. We all stand.